0: You know, I get more convinced every time I come here that uh, Steve has shares in a chocolate company. <laughs> Either that or he's a very generous individual, one of the two. Anyhow, let's get back um, to the, the story of Jesus, shall we? This, oops, I'm not losing bits of paper here. Um, Over this year, we're going right through the life story of Jesus, Sunday by Sunday when I'm here with you. And uh, we've reached Jesus' baptism this morning. Now, one of the problems with Jesus' story, obviously, is you've got four different versions of it. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. So that might mean that uh, through the year, we have to read from a variety of places. This morning, I want to read from three of the Gospels. Just a a short passage, but let's have a look at that anyhow. We'll start with Luke chapter 3 which is Luke's account of the whole thing. And uh, Luke chapter 3 and verse 1 says this. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of uh, Ituria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the desert. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight and the rough ways smooth and all mankind will see God's salvation. Well, those are stern words. Let's move on to John chapter 1, the start of John's gospel. And uh, John chapter 1 and verse 19 says this. Now, this was John's testimony when the Jews of Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but he confessed freely, I am not the Christ. They asked him, then, who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? He answered, No. Finally, I said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the desert. Make straight the way for the Lord. Finally, (laughs) Matthew chapter 3. And uh, this just uh, uh, fills out the picture a little bit more. Uh, Chapter 3 and verse 1 of Matthew says this. In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the desert of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the desert, Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People came out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. That I think will do for our reading. That gets us started. So, we've reached the point of talking about Jesus' baptism. Before we get there though, just a quick word about what's happening tonight. Uh, Over last week and this week, we're looking at one of the big questions, the great questions that people sometimes ask Christians, which is, this time, if there's a God, why is the world full of suffering? Why does so much go wrong? Why do ordinary people have to suffer sudden uh, illnesses and misfortunes and redundancies and car accidents and all sorts of things like that? Why is the world in such a mess? There really is a God who loves us and cares about us. And last week we had a a start at looking at that question. Tonight what we're going to do is go into depth a little bit more and make it practical for Christians who want to answer those questions. So we'll talk about the things that people often say that are related to this question. And the reason to be asking it, because some people ask this question just casually, other people ask it intellectually, and other people ask it out of the depths of their own personal suffering. Now, you cannot talk to them all in the same way. So we'll talk about why people ask this question, the things they say. Second, we'll have a look at some of the key Bible passages that tell you what God really is saying to us about the suffering of the world and his love and how it fits together. And third, I want to give you three points that people can remember. If suddenly you're asked and your mind goes blank, and you think, oh, what do I say? What do I say?" These three points might just be the things to keep in the back of your mind that help you uh, put together an answer to anybody who asks you uh, to on, on this particular question. So that's tonight. Next time I'm here, by the way, which will be the last Sunday in the month, we're going to look at another big question that people ask, which is, do all religious lead to God? <laughs> there are millions of Christians, Muslims, and they're becoming more and more vocal in the little country. There are Hindus, there are Buddhists, there are people who belong to all sorts of faiths, and none. Do all of these different things lead in the same direction or not? Isn't it arrogant for Christians to say we have the truth and you're all wrong? What can you say? Doesn't sound arrogant, but uh, say, it says it exactly as it is. Yes, sir. Sure. Yeah, okay. Well, that's the kind of thing that we're going to be looking at. So we'll talk about that uh, uh, in in a couple of sessions, end of the month, uh, the last Sunday in the month, and the first Sunday in April. So, that's coming up, and if you've got people who want to think about that kind of question, friends of yours or whatever, do feel free to bring them to that one at the end of March, because it will be geared towards non-Christians as well as Christians, and we'll see what we can make of it. Anyhow, let's just carry on now with what we're doing this morning. And first of all, let's look back. What were we talking about last week? We were talking about the childhood of Jesus, which the Gospels don't say much about, but they do remind us of a few things, and we can put a picture together. First of all, where it all started. The first thing you read about when Jesus is born, is the massacre of the innocents. And we tried to put that into, into uh, perspective. Why does Jesus' life story start with a massacre? Why does it start with babies, innocent babies being killed? And we said last week, it, t- it introduces us to three things that we need to bear in mind. We can't explain everything in life. And even in the life of the Son of God, right from the start, there were these questions which are nowhere totally explained. But mind us that this is going to happen to all of us. There's a mystery of the existence of evil. The fact that nobody gets an easy ride in this world. The one thing we can all be certain of, however long or short our life is, is sorrow. Because it happens to all of us. There's a mystery of the suffering of the innocent. It's not the people who deserve it, who always get it. And there's a mystery of the fact that God's purposes work through the whole thing and he brings good out of evil and everything, uh, in everything he's at work for the good of those who, are, who he loves and who are called according to his purpose. So we talked about that. Then we talked about how it all developed in Jesus' own life and how he grew up. And we said he was a well-rounded square, as, as, as people used to put it. Four different sides to him. First of all, he grew up mentally and it's important that we use our brain God's given us the powers of judgment and discrimination to do some thinking with. Not just that, we need to grow up physically as well. Jesus grew in stature, And we need to take our bodies seriously because they're given to us to, 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 to be an expression of, of, of life, physical life in this universe. And we need to handle them uh, carefully because it's through our body that we experience so much of life. Um, third, uh, we need to grow mentally and, uh, and we need to grow socially. Uh, so, so we So we, we spiritually, we need to grow socially. In favour with God, that's the spiritual side. We need to grow as spiritual beings and grow into a relationship with him, which is made available to us through Jesus. And socially, in favour with men, Jesus grew up in that way as well. He was able to live in the real world with other people, play his full part as a human being alongside them. And God wants us to develop in all of those different ways. Finally, we talked about what it all produced, and we talked about the fact that in Jesus, at age 12... When he go to the temple and uh, his, he, th- his parents find him talking to the leaders of the people, you see three things about Jesus. First of all, he's starting to realize he's a bit different. Didn't you know that I should be about my father's business, he says to his mother. He realizes now he has a special relationship to God the Father. And he's not just a human child. But there's a special job for him to do. And over the next few years, he's going to be working that out as he prays, as he writes the scriptures, as he thinks about it, and he begins to work out what God is doing in his life. And begins to realize just how special he is. Second, he listened. He wasn't there just to preach at the edge of the temple. Although he was sitting there with the leaders in the temple, he was learning from them. He was asking them questions. And Jesus was a human being just as we are, he grew by by learning by taking things on board and putting them together in his mind. And God allowed his son to come to earth and live for 30 years in that kind of condition. Also, he obeyed. He was the leadership of his parents and he did what they said. And through their example, he learned things that he didn't know as a baby. (laughs) And so God allowed his son to grow up a normal human life for 30 years. And for 30 years he lived in obscurity. As we said last time too, that's, that's the, the this time that we don't know much about. But it's the last three years that the Gospels mainly focus on. So you've got 30 years of obscurity and then just three years of activity that changes the world. And what we're talking about this morning is the hinge in the middle. Something happens when he's 30 that leads him into those next vital and crucial three final years. I remember when I was 30, it was a long way back, but I remember becoming 30 and thinking, it's the end of my 20s. I'm not 20-something anymore. I'm no longer officially young. Oh, dear me. Where where do I go from here? I remember being 30 and kind of panicking and thinking, what have I done in the last 10 years? And I couldn't remember a single thing. I can now. (laughs) But I remember thinking, my 20s have gone like like a rocket. What do I do now? Where am I supposed to be? I remember looking at some life stories. <coughs> I am sitting in my office, I remember when this thought came to me. And I picked up a book called The Lion History of Christianity. And I started looking to it for what happened to different people who were Christians at age 30. And I found it was a massive turning point for a lot of them. St. Augustine, for example, William Carey. Lots of other people. It was a long time ago, so I don't remember all the stories. But it struck me how many people. Spurgeon was another one, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Age 30, it was a turning point in their life. And of course, that was the way it was for Jesus as well. And the hinge on all of this is where Jesus is baptised. This is what ends the obscurity and pitchforks him into the activity that was so important, that was a job that God had really sent him for and which he spent 30 years training him for already. And uh, central to the whole thing is this guy, John the Baptist. He's the one who baptises Jesus. He's the one who, if you remember at the start of the the Gospels, um, is born as a very special baby before even uh, the arrival of God's really special baby Jesus is announced to Mary. Elizabeth was already pregnant. And so John the Baptist and Jesus were two babies who appeared close together, who were part of the same plan, and whose lives were very much bound up together. We've read words which John says, listen, I'm not the Messiah. I'm not even the prophet that Moses spoke about. I'm certainly not Elijah. I'm none of those people. I am just a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. That's interesting. Those words come from Isaiah chapter 4. If you know anything about the book of Isaiah, it's a prophecy that falls into two parts or or three parts, depending on how you look at it. And the first part, up to chapter 39, is largely history. It's about the way in which the people of Israel have tried and failed to do what God wanted them to do. And at the end of chapter 9, it's a situation of compromise and failure. And you've got an old king who's about to die. He's been a good king, he's been a visionary king, he's trying to do his best for his people. And he's warned just as he approaches the end of his life that uh, he's made a very unwise um, friendship with the Babylonians. And one of these days, they're going to march into his kingdom and take it over, and everybody's going to be taken out of the city, and it's all going to be destroyed. And he says something staggering. He says, uh, is this going to happen in my lifetime? Will it happen soon? And the, the prophet says, no, no, it won't happen soon. And so Hezekiah says, the word of the Lord is good. But he thinks, well, I won't be here. <laughs> and that's how it's left. Somebody who has battled for the people of Israel all of his life has just run out of energy. He's prepared to compromise. He's, he's not worried about disasters coming in the future because he won't be around to see it. And so chapter 39 grinds to a halt. Then chapter 40 starts by saying it's not always going to be like this. Things are going to happen. Things are going to be different. And you're going to hear a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord because he's coming back. The desert's going to blossom like a rose. It's going to be incredible. So, what I want to do, just to look at this whole story this morning for a few minutes, is look at three of the words in it the voice, John the Baptist, the wilderness, where he did his work, and the Lord, Jesus, suddenly appearing by the riverside, saying to John, okay, you can baptize me too. Let's have a look at those three things. Let's start with the wilderness. This is the Judean desert. This is what it looks like. And uh, the wilderness comes up quite a bit, actually, in the Bible, if you look through the uh, um, references to it. And it's because I think it was, it was always there on the edge of the country, and it meant an awful lot to the people. It meant all sorts of different things to them. For one it was about failure. The wilderness was a place that talked about sin and falling short of what God wanted and so on. For one thing, when the Israelites were on their way out of Egypt in captivity across to the promised land, they rebelled against God so grievously that they had to spend another 40 years wandering around the desert before they got into the land that had been promised. And so being there in the desert, waking up every morning in those conditions where it's arid and it's dry and there's no vegetation, that kind of thing was a reminder to them, we are failures. We are rebels, and God is not going to take us into the Promised Land until, it, unless he's, until he's dealing with us here. Also, every year, the sacrifice for the sins of the people that took place in the show ceremony, and there was a goat called a scapegoat that was chosen to bear the sins of the people, and it was treated as if it was responsible for the lot. It was sent off just not to be cared for, not to be looked after, just to die on its own, Where was it sent off? Into the desert. Because the desert is a place of failure. And I think that was one thing that uh, John's appearance in the wilderness was all about. The fact that in that place that represented failure and chaos and compromise and, and everything else, God was appearing. God was bringing hope. The desert was also about being alone. And you find through the Bible lots of people who were sent into the desert on their own because God wants to speak to them. That's where God spoke to Moses. It was in a desert where God spoke to Elijah when he, he had a nervous breakdown and gone on the run. Again and again, the wilderness is a place that God takes you to because there he can bring you up against the full reality of who you are and what you've done. And he can speak to you in a realistic way, not to punish you, but to get you ready to go back into what he's got for you. Third thing about the desert is... It was about God coming to rescue people who didn't deserve it. Out of the desert comes hope. That's why Isaiah 40 says, "Make a highway for God in the desert." Now, what did that mean? Well, the desert, as you can see from this picture of the Judean desert, was not like the Sahara. <laughs> it wasn't a sort of smooth sand and, and and miles and miles of. Uh, um, uh, smooth sand hills before you get to the next oasis. It was scrubby uh, land, dotted with rocks and plants growing and unusual places and uh, uh, scrubby little plants and things like that as well, but enough to, to make it difficult uh, to, to march through. And you'll find that most of the people who invaded Israel with armies from outside would come in through the north, down the coast, because that was the easy way to do it, to come up through the Judean desert. Oh, that was incredibly difficult. Progress was not easy. So Isaiah says, prepare in the desert a highway for God. Don't let anything stop God sweeping through the desert in all of his power and coming into the country once again. Because he'll transform that desert. And what's been a desert in your life will blossom, will flourish. There'll be new hope, there'll be creativity, there'll be things that you never dreamt could produce, could be produced in your life. The desert can be a place of hope. Matthew Henry, the great Bible commentator, uh, talks about the wilderness, when he talks about his passage, he says, It was in this wilderness of Judah that David penned the 63rd Psalm, which speaks so much of the communion he then had with God. The beginning of the gospel in a wilderness speaks comfort to the deserts of the Gentile world. Now must the prophecies be fulfilled. I will plant in the wilderness the cedar, Isaiah 41. The wilderness shall be a fruitful field, Isaiah 32. The desert shall rejoice, Isaiah 35. And Septuagint, that's a Greek translation of the Old Testament, which uh, <coughs> was the, the Bible that Jesus and his disciples used to do. The Septuagint reads, The deserts of Jordan. That's the very wilderness in which John preached." So he keeps on heaping up these verses that talk about the wilderness as a place where God will do something. In the prophet of, prophecy of Hosea, for instance, which is a rebellion and failure and restoration, God says this, I am now going to allure her. That's his people. I will lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. There I will give her back her vineyards. I'll make the valley of Achor a door of hope. There she will respond as in the days of her youth, as in the day she came out of Egypt. So yeah, the desert is a place of failure. It's a place of rebellion. It's a place of losing it with God. But it's also a place where God can work. miracles. He gets you on your own. He deals with you and he brings you back to the fruitfulness he wants you to have. If you look at the map of Israel, you can see how the desert was always part of their life. This is Jerusalem. Uh, and you can see that to the left of Jerusalem on that map, it's kind of dark. To the right and down a bit, it's very light. And that's because the dark bit is where the vegetation is. That's the good land. That's a land flowing with milk and honey that the Israelites were promised. That's where all of the wealth of the country comes from. But over on the right, well, that's where it's sandy and barren and it's desert. And you don't need to go very far from Jerusalem before you're in the desert. In the first 20 kilometres out of Jerusalem, you drop 6,000 feet. <laughs> and there, down in, by the Dead Sea, you are in an arid, dry climate where absolutely nothing grows. And it's, it's right on the verge. You're always on the edge of a desert. And I guess for people who are Christians, um, the desert is always close at hand. You can always drop out of God's purposes when you want to, and you can go through the desert period. And God uses those desert phases in our lives, which are arid and dry and nothing's going on, to bring us back to himself and bring us to more fruitfulness. That's why John the Baptist started preaching in the desert. Because that's where God meets with us and does something with us. And if you're going through a desert phase in your own life, then that's not because God has cast you off. It's because God wants to deal with you and bring you back to the fullness of joy and the fullness of life that he's got for you. Okay, that was the wilderness. How about the voice? John the Baptist was a strange kind of guy. From the start, he was obviously a very different kind of baby, wasn't he? <coughs> and I think his whole life is about hope for the hopeless. You see, right through the Bible, there's a chain of people who are born to families that have been waiting for a baby for years and years, and nothing's happened. Um, Abraham and Sarah, for a start. Do you remember when Abraham was told by God to go from his home and travel into what became the promised land? Um, He was told he'd be the father of many great nations and a, a, a tremendous bunch of people. didn't happen because he was old. His wife was old and there was no way that physically she could conceive, but she did. And Isaac became the baby of promise. But then Isaac married Rebecca, and in Isaac's own life the same thing happened. Rebecca could not conceive until suddenly, years after she should have done, she had twins and one of those was Jacob. Jacob! Jacob married Rachel and Rachel again could not conceive, could not have a baby until very late in her life. And then she had Joseph, who became another important figure. So you see, Samuel, later on, again, born to a woman who was desperate to have a baby, but couldn't. Samson, born to a family that had given up all hope of having, having children, but there he was, and he was imposing God's plan. So there's this whole train that goes through the Bible of babies born to families who don't expect anything to happen, <laughs> and yet... The baby that's born is very, very important indeed. And so John stands in that tradition, and it's as if God was saying, through giving him to Elizabeth, who had given all hope of having a family, who was desperate to have a baby, but couldn't. Yes, I'm, I'm with you, and you're going to have a baby, and it's going to be important. So, there are three things I think you have to look at at John to understand him. First of all, how he lived. Second, what he did. Third, what he said. Let's look at them very briefly. First of all, how he lived. That description of him is weird, isn't it? Why would he wear a garment of hair, camel's hair, or something like that? Especially in the desert, that can't be very comfortable. <laughs> Why did he live on locusts and wild honey? Well, I think there are good reasons for that. First of all, the garment of hair would remind you, or remind a Jew anyhow, of the prophet Elijah, who spent a lot of his time in the desert. And uh, you find at the start of Second Samuel. Uh, he appears to the servants of a king and makes a strange statement to them. They go back and tell the king and the king says, So who was this man that said a strange thing to you? What did he look like? And he said, well, he had a garment of um, camel hair around his waist. Ah, that's Elijah. <laughs> so John is deliberately wearing clothes that remind you of that Old Testament prophet who lived in the wilderness, who was there to bring the people of Israel back to a faith they would left 40 years before. And that was why he was he was uh, dressed like that. The locust and wild honey. Well, um, I, the Bible doesn't suggest that that's everything that John ate. Just that that was his staple diet. I think what I'm saying is that John was one uh, was focused on one thing. His whole life was focused on serving God and doing what he had to do to 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 to, 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 to bring about his message and, and and make people listen to him. And he didn't care about himself. He was the ultimate one focus servant of God and uh, he had this this one mission to deliver and he knew he was on a a limited time which he was because soon he was he was arrested and tried and killed and he had to do it while while he could second what did he do why did he baptize people that's a really interesting thing isn't it nobody baptized people much before john baptist came along but we do know that uh, Around this time, the Jews were getting very interested in water, the symbol of how you make yourself ready for God's presence. After all, Herod had just built a massive temple in Jerusalem. And every time you went to the temple, you had to go through a mikveh, which was a ritual bath. You had to bid yourself to become ready for God's presence. Wealthy houses that were based around the temple in Jerusalem would have their own private baths and things like that because it was just such an important part of life. And so that business of bathing again and again became quite important. However, what John was saying was, look, you need one bath. You don't need uh, to be going back to God again and again and again and again. What you need is to have a ceremony in which you say to God, look, I'm really sorry for the way I've been living, and I want to change, I want to be different. And so the ritual bath was a way of, of doing that baptise yourself in the river, says John, and get me to baptise you. And do that as a way of saying, I really want to be forgiven. Now John was clear, that there was nothing magic about the form of baptism that he, he, he was adopting. Because the advice he gives, you can see it in Luke chapter 3, to the different groups of people who come for baptism, is change your life. There are things you can do. If you're a soldier, if you're somebody who's got more money than other people, if you're somebody who's got less money than other people, there are things that you can do that will show that you really mean it. And so the baptism of John, I guess, was a bit like uh, a preacher nowadays saying, okay, if you want to accept Jesus, raise your hand. Or if you want to become a Christian tonight, walk out to the front. That doesn't save you. It's just a way of testifying to something that's happening inside you. So John was saying, if you're baptized by me, you are making a solemn promise, a one-off promise to God. It's not just another ritual. It's something that's going to change your life. So what was he actually saying? Why were people needing to be baptized? Well, I think there was a three-part message John was delivering that uh, we need to get hold of. The first thing clearly was he was urgent in what he did because he was saying, the kingdom of God is almost here. God is changing the deal. Somebody's going to arrive after me who's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. I'm just baptizing with water, but I'll baptize you now and you can help get ready. Prepare in the desert the way that the king will go. It's urgent, it's got to happen right now. The second thing he was saying was, because this is happening, it's time to turn around and live, you know you should. You need to change, and only if you live in the way that the kingdom uh, expects you to live is, uh, will you be able to, 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 to be ready for the coming of the king. But he was quite clear that this wasn't the final deal. People couldn't change themselves. They could live in a certain way, but they needed something else to happen inside them. A baptism of fire, as he put it. A Holy Spirit who would come and change them and make them to different people. But that's the third sort of thing he said. I'm just a messenger. There's somebody far more amazing who's about to come. And when you see him, <laughs> that is really going to put all of the pieces together. And I reckon that so many people became Christians in the days after Jesus' resurrection because of the groundwork that John had laid. I mean, you just need to look at the internet and you'll find that he is still regarded by Jews worldwide as a very important figure indeed in their history. Jesus, not so much, but John, yes. Because he laid the groundwork for something super important that was to come. And uh, strangely, one of those days when John was there baptizing people who were coming out, all sorts of people from the city and the region and the area, somebody turned up who was different. And John, we don't know how much he'd had to do with Jesus during their growing up. Probably not very much, because they were seven miles or thereabouts apart. But he knew Jesus. And he recognised him as soon as he saw him. And, uh, well, when Jesus was baptised by John, three things happened. First of all, John made an objection before he baptised him. Second, when he did baptise him, Jesus had a vision, which John also got. We don't know how many other people saw it. And third, the voice of God was heard. Let's just in our last couple of minutes focus on those three things. First of all, John's objection. John is staggered because he sees Jesus coming down to the waterside, and he he cannot believe that Jesus wants to be baptised by him because he already knows that Jesus, that baby that was born as a relative of his, is far more important than he is. Jesus is sinless. John is baptising people and helping them, but he realises himself he's a sinner. There are things in him that need to be forgiven however much he's a servant of god however much he's given up for the sake of his message he's still a sinner so he says to jesus look i need to be baptized by you it's not the other way around why are you here to be baptized are you saying that you are a sinner too you can't say that that's impossible i know who you are you're the holy one of god and it's not that way and jesus is a very interesting answer It says to to, to John, suffer it to be so now. That's the way the English translations put it. It's just two words in Greek, which means, for now, say yes. (laughs) He says, because this is the way that we ought to fulfill all righteousness. What does that mean? Well, it means that Jesus is identifying with sinners. He's not a sinner. He's the Holy Son of God. But what he's doing in his baptism is showing solidarity, identifying with, taking on himself all of the problems that humanity has caused for himself. He's saying, look, you're all sinners and I want to do something about that sin. I want to suffer and die on the cross, as Steve was saying to us earlier on, so that you can be redeemed, bought with a price by God. And so I need to be baptised just to show this is who I am. I am the representative of the human race who's going to go to the cross and die so that you can be forgiven. He was the only human being who could ever be like that. Do you remember the the Easter hymn that kids will be singing in schools, I guess, over the next few weeks? There was no other good enough to pay the price of sin. He only could unlock the gate of heaven and let us in. Jesus was the perfect son of God, and only he could pay the price. So, John baptizes him, not without misgivings, he does that, and as he comes up out of the water, Jesus has a vision. And the vision is a vision of a dove coming down from heaven and resting on him. And that dove is the Holy Spirit. And then at that point too, there's another thing that happens, which is his voice is heard. I don't know how many people heard it, probably not everybody that was there. We know that John heard it because he describes it in, in John's gospel. We know that Jesus heard it too. And that voice of God from heaven was giving a final seal to what Jesus was doing. You see, Jesus could identify for human race by being baptized. And probably many other people who saw him being baptized thought, yeah, he yeah, is just like us. But God was determined it would be different. And so Jesus has a suggestion. And John has this vision of a dove descending on him. Why a dove? It's interesting because all four Gospels talk about that detail. I saw the Holy Spirit like a dove coming down and settling on Jesus. Well, I think there are lots of reasons. For one thing, the dove is a symbol of gentleness and meekness and innocence and purity. And all of those things that Jesus was going to be about. For another thing, though, the dove was a sacrificial bird. If you're poor, when you went to the temple, you could sacrifice a dove or two doves as the, uh, a way of saying, I'm sorry to God. And it was as if the dove was suffering, the suffering that you should be suffering in your place. And so the dove coming down and settling on Jesus is looking forward to the cross, to the way in which Jesus was going to give his life the innocent person dying on behalf of the guilty. There's also possibly the a dove settles gently and permanently when it comes to rest. It doesn't swoop down like a vulture or a hawk or something like that. It comes down and settles. Have you ever seen you know, a pigeon in the city centre or something like that, landing on uh, a paracar or a drain pipe or whatever? A dove comes down slowly and gently, doesn't it? But very purposefully. And that's what uh, is being described for us here. The Holy Spirit doesn't make a sudden swoop on Jesus. It's not, right, I'm here, Uh, let's do something, then I'll go back to heaven again. The Holy Spirit is simply descending on Jesus, slowly and purposefully. And the Holy Spirit is going to drive Jesus' life for the next three years, as he's subject to living by the power of his Father and doing things that no other human being could. And so for all these reasons, the dove comes down. But just in case that isn't enough, God speaks himself out of heaven. And he says two things. First of all, he says, this is my beloved son. Second, he says, with whom I am well pleased. And those things must have reminded Jesus and John and anyone else who could hear it about two passages from the Old Testament. First of all, this is my beloved son. is a quotation from Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is the coronation psalm. It was used for the day that the king of Israel was crowned. And in the psalm it says, You are my son, today I have begotten you. It's as if God was taking the king of Israel to be, in one sense, his son. (laughs) Jesus didn't need to be crowned, though. He was always God's son. And so the voice from heaven says, This is my beloved son this is a true king of Israel. You might have noticed the first chapter we read from Luke chapter 3. It's about all the people who were ruling at the time when Jesus was baptised by John. And when you look through the list, they're a pretty seamy bunch. <laughs> Most of them were not on the throne for much longer after Jesus was baptised. They were all reaching the end of the road. They didn't have a distinguished record. The emperor Tiberius down. And uh, What's more, often they weren't the people that should have been ruling in those positions. In Israel, for example, it was a whole bunch of foreigners, Edomites, people Syrians, people we don't know much about. And so, in the midst of all of that, that government by people who shouldn't have ever have been in charge, God's Spirit comes to John by the riverside. And God says out of heaven, as Jesus is baptized, This is my beloved Son. And finally, with whom I am well pleased. (laughs) What's he saying there? Well, that's a quotation from Isaiah chapter 42. And in Isaiah 42, which is, again, in that section of Isaiah, where it says, prepare the way of the Lord, where God is just exploring what's going to happen and who's going to do it, he says this, This is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him. And so as the Spirit settles on Jesus like a dove, God says, this is Isaiah 42, come to life. I delight in this this son of mine. He's lived for 30 years on earth and he's done everything that pleases me. I'm now ready to use him in the most epic way in the history of the planet. It will hurt me, it will hurt him. And uh, for some brief hours on the cross, he and I will be separated in a way that hasn't happened in the eternity before. Now. It will be the most important uh, moment in the history of the universe. But he's ready. He's my son. And Isaiah 42 is one of the four passages where Isaiah describes the great servant of God who's going to come and is going to be the center of God's purposes as he turns a desert into a flourishing field. And uh, God's suffering servant is Jesus. He's not just the king of Israel. He's also God's perfect servant too. So that's why Jesus' baptism is the hinge between the first part and the second part of his life. It's important. It's vital. And you might think, well, that's all very interesting, but what do we get out of it as we look at it? I think it reminds us of faith, doesn't it? First of all, I think it helps us look at Jesus a little bit more clearly. When we see what God was doing through him, when we see how perfectly he fitted into God's plan, it gives us the conviction that here is somebody whom you'll never meet anywhere else. He's the only person who ever could possibly fulfill that role and is worthy of all of our worship and our praise. We stand in awe and worship him, mighty God, to whom all praise is due. Second, it makes us look at ourselves. If we're Christians and we're servants of God, how dedicated are we to seeing God's will done in the way that John was first and then Jesus was second. How prepared are we to identify with other people who've got problems that we don't have and to be a channel of God's grace and mercy to them? How prepared are we to just go the way of misunderstanding and rejection so that other people can know something of the grace of God? And third, finally, I think it helps us look not just at ourselves, just at Jesus, but at the God we serve. A God who's prepared to work in such fine detail to bring about his purpose and bring everything together, all sorts of random details, in order that his purposes are fulfilled. We are in the hands of someone who will let us down, and his glory and his mercy will be with us as long as we live. Let's just pray together for a second, shall we? And then Stephen, come back. So Heavenly Father, you've helped us see just how important the baptism of Jesus actually was. It looks back at a life that had been lived perfectly up until that point. And it looks forward to the cross, the resurrection, and our acceptance into your family. Thank you for all that that incident meant 2,000 years ago and still means to us today. Help us serve you with just an iota of the devotion, the determination, and the self-discipline of the Lord Jesus. We ask it for your name's sake.